We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, I'm so excited. You can probably hear it in my voice to be joined once again by my colleague who just hasn't been on the podcast in a while because she moved out of the swamp, Kylie Zempel. Kylie, welcome back. Thanks, Emily. So good to be back. Haven't talked to you in a while. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a thing where uh, because we're we're all remote, I talk to you over email constantly, but I never hear the sound of your voice. I never get to hear yours either. <laughs> well, you're welcome, Kyle. It's a big loss. You just exposed yourself as a non-listener to Federalist Radio Hour. <laughs> Kylie, good news for you. You can hear the uh, the the sound of my voice, the gentle, relaxing sound of my voice every day for about an hour. Emily, it's commentary like that. That's why I don't tune into the Federalist Radio Hour every day because nobody needs that much snark. You know, I kid, I kid. Everyone should listen to the Federalist Radio Hour. <laughs> Great save, guys. Um, well, so yesterday we talked to uh, Drew Holden about his uh, gargantuan efforts to chronicle the hypocrisy of our blue check elites, and he does a lot of uh, sort of fact checking Dr. Fauci and checking Dr. Fauci against Dr. Fauci. Um, and so we're going to talk about Dr. Fauci again today because there is breaking news about Dr. Fauci. But what we're going to do is broaden the conversation into all of these. Uh, immense failures on a broad scale over the course of COVID um, on the behalf of bureaucrats, essentially, that are animating people around the country in ways that people here in the Beltway do not understand. Kylie wrote a, a great long piece that is headlined, Wisconsin parents join national crusade to wrestle their kids back from left-wing government schools. It's a piece of reporting that uh, the Federalist specializes in, somebody who doesn't just parachute into Wisconsin for a few days and write this up, but somebody who who lives in Wisconsin and and is uh, reporting on this from a long-term perspective. Kylie, though, let's start with Fauci, because there is breaking news today. Our colleague Jordan <laughs> has a, a headline that was just published. Fauci is a corrupt, arrogant tyrant who deserves to be fired into the sun. Um, to be fair, that's not breaking news. That has been true. Yeah, that in and of <laughs> for quite some time. Yeah, that is not that is not particularly breaking. Um, so Fauci lashed out at legislators again today. He's been doing that over the course of the last years. He seemed to call Republican Senator Roger Marshall, quote, a moron on a hot microphone. Um, he sort of had a another tussle with Rand Paul. Rand Paul said, the anger that's developed with you, Dr. Fauci, is that you don't want to give us advice. You want to tell us what to do. You think you are the science and that anybody responds to you. That kind of arrogance, that hubris is Really, that's where the anger is coming towards you. If you're one doctor among hundreds of doctors in the government who gave advice, I don't think anybody, people might object to your advice. There wouldn't be such a degree of anger, but you are so certain that you're right that you're not willing to hear anybody else. So this is important. Um, that exchange is important. Fauci sort of went back at him, too. Um, and uh, here's another question that, so this is what Fauci said to Senator Tommy Tuberville. He said, I think part of the confusion is that when you do a reporting, if you get vaccinated and you walk out and get hit by a car, that is considered a death. And uh, again, these are things, one of the many, many, many things that you could have read on our site <laughs> over the past two years, and that we were actually being censored for by uh, large companies and 
you know, the government, of course, wanted that to wanted that kind of thing to be considered uh, disinformation. So, Kylie, we also saw the Republican Oversight Committee committee released emails from Dr. Fauci today, and this is sort of a long-winded introduction to the conversation. But there was a dump of Fauci news just today. Those mm-hmm. emails showed him referring to the lab leak conspiracy, uh, as Dr. Francis Collins put it in an email, a damaging conspiracy that could affect international harmony. Hilarious. Um, <laughs> Fauci, you know, saying back to him, this is early in 2020, that it was a shiny object that would disappear um, at some point. Meanwhile, he was saying, you know, we can't dismiss this. We haven't totally dismissed this, but not treating it with a ton of credibility. Um, and privately was just treating it as, oh, it's just a shiny object. Uh, so, so, Kylie, what is your reaction to the uh, Fauci news dump? I, I want to frame that question to you with, is this now becoming an untenable problem for Democrats and for Joe Biden? Well, um, I'll get to the second part of your question in a bit. Um, There's so much Fauci news. It's hard to even know where to start. Um, The first thing that's interesting is just like the level. It's hard to distinguish sometimes between how much of it is um, like trying to pull the wool over the public's eyes and how much of it is just pure lack of self-awareness about how wrong they are. Um, you know, you'd like to believe a lot of it is nefarious, but so much of it is just like so backwards. Um, for instance, you mentioned, uh, getting hit by a bus. Like, uh, it, it was hilarious and infuriating today to listen to Dr. Fauci and, uh, Walensky sit there and talk about, for instance, uh, the fact that we can't trust the VAERS data because it doesn't distinguish um, between deaths from the vaccine or just deaths after the vaccine, where if you get the vaccine and then, you know, you get bit, you know, bit by a shark or hit by a bus, then that gets counted as a post-vaccination death. Um, and they, they either are <laughs> trying to be so sly as not to show their cards here, or they're just that they lack that much self-awareness that it's like, you didn't care about this distinction when, you know, the right side of the aisle was saying, okay, well, why are we counting all of these deaths as being from COVID when a lot of them are just with COVID? And so we're seeing just so much of this surfacing now, and it came up over and over today, of course, during the hearing. Um, But I think uh, Rand Paul hit the nail on the head. Um, It is the hubris that is driving people mad. It is this idea that, um, that these, this ruling class of experts represents the science and any dissent from that is somehow uh, a threat. Fauci was trying to make the claim that, you know, uh, attacks on his credibility are like violence and and threatening his life. And that's just so absurd. Um, And it's this hubris, this pride that anything that they say that uh, is, you know, not trusted or that is um, combated with counter evidence is somehow um, an attack on science and an attack on them personally. And so that is uh, kind of the springboard and I guess the general frame that um, is helpful in viewing something like this Waukesha Town Hall that I covered this weekend of these parents who are so frustrated with COVID uh, restrictions, because here you have parents who, you know, they're hearing things from the experts. They're hearing Fauci and Walensky go back and forth on the guidance and cater to special interest groups like teachers unions on masks and school closures. And it's just this constant flip-flopping, constant talking down and condescension. And, you know, you need to get your five-year-olds vaccinated now, even though they are at almost zero risk of COVID. And meanwhile, you have these parents who are 
living throughout the country. They're not in the swamp. They're not, you know, part of this ruling class, but they're watching day in and day out the struggles of their children. They're watching their kids' grades tank. They're watching the social isolation, the mental health issues. They're watching their healthy kids be treated like, you know, pariahs for not wearing their mask correctly. And it's this level of hubris that Rand Paul identified um, that is really such a helpful frame in understanding why so many parts of the country do have a problem with people like Dr. Fauci and do um, have a lot of questions about the the credibility of the expert class um, and questions about the science that's being used. Because um, at this point, you know, we can all find a study that supports um, how we've decided to cope with and live with and assess the risks of COVID. Yeah, I think you're right that Senator Paul, this was this was my exact reaction. He put his finger on this in a way that I think is really rare to see from members of Congress. But Senator Paul, like, really, really hit the nail on the head when he said that the anger at Anthony Fauci um, stems not from this place of, you know, disagreeing with the science. It's about not only is is he, um, you know, wrong on the science constantly while he's invoking the science and invoking himself literally, and I'm not using that that word as a typical millennial, although I sometimes do, he is literally talking about himself as the personification of science. I am science, right. science itself. Um, so it's it's the fact that people are people are angry at dr fauci for being having this hubris and i don't think the the problem for the left is they don't agree with that they have never been able to sort of see past their own biases they still have these these partisan blinders on that don't allow them to see what the rest of the country is seeing not just republicans but also independents and i guarantee you a good handful of democrats as well it's a bad look. Um, and, and Kylie, given all of the the mountain of, of information that we talked about in the lead up, all of these new emails that the Oversight Committee, which there's more than even I was able to fit into that introduction that they show, um, we, we have a report up on our site, all kinds of things like that he consciously helped modify the definition of gain and fun- gain of function um, to allow the EcoHealth Alliance to use uh, federal funding to do gain of function research without calling it gain of function research. So it seems as though there's a snowball and it's continuing to be worse for Fauci. While Democrats have struggled to sort of see the political benefit of ditching him, uh, do you think that they may be at a point of reaching critical mass with Fauci? Uh, Well, it's hard to say because like, Uh, It certainly is snowballing, but also this is not new information. Like this email dump is basically uh, it basically just corroborates emails that we already had. I forget when the first email dump came out, but we already knew all of this stuff about gain of function research, about Fauci um, knowing about the possibility of a lab leak theory and throwing cold water on it and trying to cover it up in the media. Um, So a lot of these things that came out today and that lawmakers are looking to get answers to, it's not really new information. They're new emails, but it's stuff we already knew. Um, And so it might be politically expedient for Democrats to dump him. But frankly, it's been politically expedient for them to do that for quite some time now, because this information has been public for a while. This really isn't anything new. 
are they seeing like is there is there let's see is there a limit <laughs> with dr fauci I, I was watching mean girls the other day and uh, all i can think of right now is the limit does not exist but with uh anthony fauci does the limit exist is there a point where he becomes so toxic for democrats that they have to get rid of it, that not only do they have to get rid of him but that they recognize they have to get rid of him i feel like COVID has done something in my brain that i didn't know was possible in the in the sense that like it has really stretched the limits of what i think of common sense as dictating like mm-hmm. um uh fauci has so um expended his his usefulness and his credibility that like common sense says yes he has passed the point of being useful for democrats um you know, that there is a limit and that they will get to the point where it's like, okay, he's no longer useful. We need to dump him the same way that they dumped, say, Andrew Cuomo or whoever else. Right. Um, But Democrats and Fauci continue to defy that common sense and that logic to such a degree that I don't like I can't just invoke common sense and, and say, yes, we're probably about two steps from Democrats dumping him, because I would think that given the blow to his credibility and just how blatantly partisan he's been, uh, that would have happened a long time ago. So I have trouble kind of discerning where the limit is because we've gone so far past so many of these limits um, regarding COVID that where do you, where on earth do you draw the line when half of the country has not trusted Dr. Fauci for, you know, a year and a half? Yeah. No, no, I think your point about Cuomo was a really, really good one because in the same sense that it was so, and Chris and Andrew Cuomo both, in the sense mm-hmm. that both of them were so obviously toxic to Democrats and to CNN for a long time. I mean, we're talking over a year. Like, like if, if there were an actual competent PR person who could sort of pull the strings and, and actually uh, shape the Democratic Party to their liking, they would have ditched them. But nobody has the... Everybody is in their silos and is so insular, they're not even able to, like, recognize that anymore. Right. Um, but the Cuomo example is a good one that it does seem to be there is some sort of indiscernible thing that suddenly becomes the tipping point democrats suddenly decide they have a problem and it's not it makes no sense because they've had a problem for a really long time right but well, something sometimes like the the timing is just right and sometimes they just do it i guess i don't know and the only thing um the only indication that i can point to that maybe he might be getting toward that tipping point is the fact that the media is now starting to i don't want to say turn on him because it's really just you know kind of a cya attempt by them um i don't want to give them i don't want to give the media credit for flipping on fauci because i don't they're not flipping on fauci um in an honest way (laughs) it's very much to help themselves but i think um you know, perhaps that indicates that maybe Fauci's utility to Democrats has has run its course. Um, you saw Brian Stelter, I think, over the weekend, um, you know, talking about the COVID panic and and Omicron. Maybe maybe we need to kind of pump the brakes on our panic over this. Other shows as well, and so perhaps that um, indicates maybe the end of Fauci's utility. But until I see any. Um, Democrats in leadership really pushing back. I, I'm hesitant to say that he's that we can be confident that he's near his end. 
Yeah, I think your your caution um, is entirely warranted here. Um, maybe I'm being uncharacteristically optimistic, but Kylie, uh, you, you wrote a story that I mentioned at the beginning that I really want to talk about because I think it's an excellent story and, again, a, a very sort of federalist story. Wisconsin parents joined National Crusade to wrestle their kids back from left-wing government schools. We're going to talk about this because, Kylie, I think it's entirely related to Anthony Fauci. I remember when we were rec- when we were reporting in Loudoun County, one of the questions we were asking these parent activists, these average people turned average Joes uh, turned activists, people who never thought they'd be political, people who voted for Obama, people who didn't follow politics that closely. Um, and thank God for that. I envy them. Um, but those those people in a lot of cases what we wanted to know is what was the thing that animated you that activated you what was it and for a lot of people their answer was first it was covid and then because of covid we started paying attention to curricula um and after that we started to basically see these bureaucrats um running amok in our personal lives and our kids lives and so i guess i'll open up this conversation to you by asking to what extent all of these things in your reporting um in wisconsin to what extent are all of these things percolating in the minds of regular americans going about their lives who have been sort of thrust (laughs) unwittingly into politics or the political uh discussion to what extent are all these things interacting with each other uh they are completely intertwined um like you mentioned related to the loudon thing um a lot of parents that i have heard from did get involved because of a particular issue. But once you start to kind of peel back those layers on what is going on in government schools and um, more importantly, even than what's going on in the schools, what's happening behind the curtain um, of the people in charge, whether it's nefarious actors or just apathy about the kind of curriculum that's floating around, what kids are learning, what's happening in those schools. You know, if you have disengaged school board members, parents are not interested in that anymore. That's not going to cut it. So um, all of these issues are intertwined from critical race theory to COVID, uh, you know, psychosis. And um, I can't think of the word I'm looking for, just craziness, just the the COVID crackdowns that have locked kids out of school. Um, All of these are on the minds of parents. Um, And it's interesting because I had one foot in this parent bubble um, interacting with parents about how COVID is affecting their kids' schools and watching these school board races and seeing um, issues like COVID animate parents to get involved in local politics in a way that they never have before. But then I have another foot, um, partly because it's just very personal to me, um, but I live in Madison, which is in Dane County, Wisconsin, <laughs> and it is... Um, It is like you are still in Washington, D.C. or in California. There is a level of um, COVID insanity here and fear that just does not spread to other parts of the state the way that it is here. Um, People wear masks nonstop. It's just it's it's a completely isolated zone in Wisconsin that is unlike the rest of the state. Um, And so I've been fighting a mask mandate that's been a temporary mask mandate that came down in um, August and has been endlessly extended every month since um, now we're you know in 2022 and the mask mandate is still mask mandate is still going and so um, I've had kind of one foot in both of these Wisconsin worlds dealing with parents who 
are sick of this. And then pleading my case, you know, before the Dane County Board of Supervisors to say, here's how we feel about mask mandates, but to listen to the number of Dane County residents who are so supportive of these insane measures for a virus that is now manifesting itself, you know, like the common cold, basically, in one of the most vaccinated counties in America. Um, And having my foot in both of these worlds and seeing the insanity of one side and then the fed up parents on the other side who are not buying any of this insanity. Um, And it's really kind of connected the dots between, you know, not just seeing fed up parents, but seeing the types of things that they are fed up with and understanding that um, that level of exasperation with just the disconnect from reality in these COVID measures. Yeah. And you've actually recently testified, right? Yes. Tell us about yeah. that. Uh, yeah. So um, there was an informal mask mandate hearing that several um, of the county supervisors put together because the board was not allowing public comment. Um, so they were pretty fired up. And so they held an informal meeting. And there was a pretty good turnout out in the middle of nowhere in Dane County, like separate from Madison, probably a 20, 30 minute drive from where a lot of people live here out in the middle of nowhere in all the fields (laughs) where it feels like you're very disconnected from Dane County, even though you're still in it. And um, a bunch of people testified and made their voices heard about the mask mandate. And it was almost 100 percent attended by people who were speaking their mind against mask mandates. Um, Nobody else was going to give up their Monday night to drive out to the middle of nowhere to, you know, support a mandate that is already in place. So. Um, Everyone was against it. And then finally, the board of supervisors took up a resolution and allowed public comment um, on whether to basically the resolution um, was to pull back the mandate until there could be public comment and until there could be more evidence released to the public about the mask mandate. And so there were several hundred people that registered for that. I believe um, 85 or so registered to speak. I was one of them. And at that hearing, there were quite a few more people in support of the the mandate. Um, And it was just remarkable to hear the types of arguments in favor of the mandate. I listened to one woman try to convince the board that the mask mandate is actually good for her business. She's a small business owner and she was saying it's good for her business. And her reasoning was because then she has the cover of a mask mandate where she can basically blame the county health officials when she tells people to put on a mask instead of just having it as a business requirement. And like the type of um, government paternalism you have to (laughs) adhere to, to think that that is the better way is just remarkable. And there was all kinds of comment like that. Um, But it's been quite a fight in Dane County. But like I said, that type of COVID um, insanity just does not spread to most of the rest of the state. And so to hear these parent concerns at this town hall was a, a lot better glimpse into what the normal flyover American thinks about these things than the um, insular bubble of Dane County. Yeah, you know, this is in your story itself. You write, talk of critical race theory. This is in Waukesha. Um, you start the story in Waukesha, which is where I'm from. Um, where were you, by the way? What, what was the banquet hall? Um, it was, oh, I don't remember. Um, Tuscan banquet okay. hall, maybe? Okay, cool. Um, I guess it doesn't matter that much. Uh, but you know, there are all kinds of maybe. Maybe I wanted to tell people where to go to, in Waukesha when they're, when they're in yeah, Waukesha. right. <laughs> uh, all kinds of good places. Um, but 
you you write talk of critical race theory leftist administrators mask mandates and school shutdowns hummed through conversations with the kind of firsthand animation that could propel once complacent wisconsin parents into a movement of activists capable of unleashing an unquenchable red wave in the dairy state they saw what happened in virginia and now they want to bring it home our documentary meet the parents which we also released as a podcast um on this feed featured Ian Pryor saying he had heard from people in Wisconsin who said exactly what you wrote, Kylie. They saw what happened in Virginia, and they want to repeat it in Wisconsin. Now, what's interesting to me about what you wrote there is it's exactly what we were just talking about, um, having seen in Virginia, having seen in Loudoun. You're in this banquet hall, and people are talking not about high taxes. They're not talking about uh, occupational licensing reform. They're talking about critical race theory, uh, bureaucrats, mask mandates, and school shutdowns. So what is it, do you think? Is there a unifying theory to all of this? Is is my impulse to want to put this under an umbrella of sort of frustration with bureaucracy um, as it's evolved in our current time to be sort of untouchable and governed by elites like Anthony Fauci, who whisper that senators are morons under their breath because nobody could possibly challenge them. Um, but is there a unifying theory? Is there an umbrella theory? Is there something sort of that Republicans can tap into um, in a in a word or in a sentence um, that is really moving people to get involved um, or to get involved more? Oh my word. That's such a, <laughs> that's such a big question. Um, that's what we do here on this podcast. Kyra. <laughs> you, you may not know it because you don't listen. <laughs> okay. That is so rude. <laughs> Emily out here just taking cheap shots. Oh. It's unbelievable. Um, <laughs> the one thing parents are seeing the things that are affecting their families acutely. And it's like um, high taxes and high prices at the gas pump. And, you know, some of these other like broader, more establishment Republican issues, it's not that Americans don't care about them, but it's that they have way more acute needs, um, way more pressing concerns than, you know, spending a couple extra dollars on their groceries. They absolutely care about that. But if their child's uh, academic future is being completely devastated, if um, their kids are being sent home, those types of things are way more immediate concerns. And until you get over that, it's hard to uh, have the enthusiasm or the energy, frankly, because you can't tackle everything at once to deal with these other, other pressing issues. So I'll give you an example. One mom at the town hall, um, she was talking about school choice and she's very thankful because she had two kids in the Milwaukee public school district, which is a mess. And frankly, um, Milwaukee public schools and Madison schools are both shutting down again. They say temporarily, but who knows due to Omicron. And so that was kind of the, um, the impetus for this town hall in the first place. Um, but so this mom had two kids in Milwaukee public schools. She called the school year quote horrendous and one of the worst years and uh, she was able to put her school, her kids in a charter school and has seen a massive turnaround. Her daughter's GPA has improved a bunch. She's now in uh, extracurricular sports, you know, just massive improvement. But she was talking about a friend of hers who has a first grader and a third grader, single mom, who has these kids in the Milwaukee public schools. And so when the school shuts down, which it just did, now this mom had to switch to third shift 
so that she could be a teacher during the day to her first and third grader and then go to work at night to provide for her kids. So she's not getting any sleep. She's up at night, up during the day, trying to work, trying to provide and trying to not sacrifice her kids academic future just because um, Milwaukee, you know, thought it best to shut down. And so you think about a mom like that. It's not that a mom like that does not care about high prices at the pump or a slightly higher grocery bill or, you know, high taxes or, you know, some of these other big Republican pet issues, but she can't really focus on that right now because she has two kids now that shouldn't be home during the day, but that are, and she has to teach them. She has to provide for them and she has to do all of this herself with no help. And so um, I think that is one of the big takeaways here is that all of these things are important, but some of them are way more acute. Hmm. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And if you can just sort of, for folks who haven't read the story yet, tell us a little bit about what you heard and what the parents were reacting to or what the parents you're chronicling uh, the experience of, what are they reacting to in the state and how are they reacting? Yeah, there was a lot of talk about school board apathy. Um, that was a big issue. Several parents talked about critical race theory and, you know, noticing they started digging through their kids curriculum and finding, you know, books being assigned like white fragility and other racially toxic books that are just um, that perpetuate these ideas of critical race theory and, you know, telling white kids that they um, have something to be ashamed of because of the color of their skin. Um, and so that animated some parents, but a lot of them were just put out by the apathy of school boards. Uh, there were two moms who worked to organize a recall election for four school board members in their district. Um, so they spoke on a panel. And um, there was also a lot of talk. Uh, we've already been talking about COVID, but that is a huge motivating factor for parents right now. Um, and honestly, um, there was a lot of just encouragement from parents to parents about the power of getting involved in their kids' school. So um, several people pointed to other parents in the room as reasons why they have started running for school board because one parent identifies a problem, starts to uh, manifest it, and makes other parents aware of it. And then those parents get involved. And then those parents start to run for school board and then encourages somebody else to do the same. And so really just a chain reaction throughout the state. Um, it's spreading. It's not an isolated room uh, of parents. It's something that is a movement um, that once you start to uncover things in your kid's school, you know, all of a sudden you have a string of people running for school board and, and trying to improve uh, schools in the state. This is an ad I'm really excited to bring to you because it addresses a problem we talk about all of the time on this program. Blinkist has the perfect content to help you be a better, smarter, and more knowledgeable version of yourself in 2022. Their goal is to empower people to grow personally and professionally by discovering content that inspires, motivates, and gives you new perspective on your lives and in the world in 2022. So how do they do that? Well, with 22 ideas for 2022, Blinkist's content can incredibly impact your lives. So there are titles of books on Blinkist, 
and they advertise themselves on their website as big ideas in small packages. So you can read major books by people like Scott Gottlieb, who has uncontrolled spread on Blinkist. Even Roger Scruton, How to Be a Conservative, that's on Blinkist. You can read books from prominent authors, books that are making a huge impact on our politics and on our culture. Ryan Holiday, who's been on this podcast, you can listen to Lives of the Stoics, you can read Lives of the Stoics, and it says right here on Blinkist's website with a subscription, that book becomes a 13-minute read. Trey Gowdy, Doesn't Hurt to Ask, that book becomes a 15-minute read on Blinkist. They have such a huge library of really important and impactful titles. If you want to read Ilhan Omar's book, you can do that in a truncated time period and it becomes digestible. We are drowning in content right now in our world. And to be able to to condense important ideas from major books that are so impactful is an invaluable contribution. It's exactly the kind of innovation that we need in this high-tech world where, again, we are drowning in content. And to be able to consume it responsibly does require some work. And this condenses the important information from those books without losing anything. That is an aha moment, right? This is an innovation that is bringing us something important that works with the way we live our lives now. And too many people, because of the way we live our lives now, just don't have enough time to get to books, period. This makes books accessible. So right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Federalist to start your seven-day free trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash Federalist to get 25% off and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash Federalist. So, Kylie, your reporting in the story is really getting at the critical question of whether what happened in Loudoun County can be replicated, right? Because it's this, it's it's one thing for people to be inspired by it. It's another thing for people to replicate it. And so the question of whether these factors that swept a Republican into victory in a blue state can be replicated elsewhere is absolutely essential and critical as to whether that pendulum that people think swung way too far to sort of against sanity, right? This new coalition of people who are not, you know, just sort of main or, or historic, traditional Republican voters, um, fusion Republican voters um, can actually make a huge difference outside just Virginia. I mean, a lot of people saw that and what was happening with the California recall. And we know how that ended, although I would you know, say there was some good groundwork laid um, for the future. So I guess my question for you is that as you're talking to people who are mounting these serious local efforts, um, you know, even if it's just about a book, even if it's just about finding Robin D'Angelo in the school library, um, if it's about a school board recall, if it's about, um, you know, big CRT policies statewide, whatever it is, do you think it can be replicated elsewhere? And is it too late, even if that does happen? No, I don't think it's too late. And I think it can be replicated elsewhere. But what's interesting is that it will not be a cookie cutter of Virginia. You know, the same issues that animated parents in Loudoun County are not exactly the same ones animating Wisconsin parents. In Loudoun County, you had this whole sexual assault case that ginned up a lot of 
um, high emotions and a lot of parent concern, uh, school boards covering it up, you know, all of that, plus critical race theory, plus then what ended up being kind of like a third tier issue of COVID, um, all of that animated Loudoun County parents. But in Wisconsin, you have critical race theory as an issue because that's just on parents' radar now. It's something they're concerned about. But one of the biggest issues, the first tier issue in Wisconsin is COVID craziness. And, you know, when you you can solve uh, issues like critical race theory, um, you can, you know, oust people uh, like, you know, school board Um, heads and school superintendents who try to cover up sexual assault and you can kind of eradicate those people. But with COVID, um, every day that passes is another day that parents are dealing with, you know, what schools have termed remote learning, even though kids aren't really learning anything. And it's another day that parents are dealing with masks, mask mandates. And, you know, these things add up day after day after day. And so until those things come to an end, which there really seems to be no end in sight, Parents are kind of tallying up the COVID craziness on this ledger. And that kind of stuff just gets to a breaking point where they are now they're animated. And I don't know what will put out that fire until these problems are fixed. Um, And it's funny because, you know, the media now is trying to kind of memory hole all of their COVID panic and trying to kind of turn back the clock and get to a point where they don't have to answer for some of these lockdown impulses and Um, you know, ginning up fear, but parents are not buying that because they're still dealing with it in their school districts. They're still watching their kids suffer through it. And so I absolutely do think that there can be a repeat in Wisconsin, like there was in Loudoun, but it's going to look different because it's, it's a different basket of issues that's animating these parents. Yep. So these points are all really uh, key and I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about the people that you're seeing involved, um, because Virginia, Wisconsin, California, these are all very different states. Even what we're watching play out um, in New York with the teachers unions in New York City versus what we're seeing play out in Chicago with the teachers unions uh, versus the city. These are very different things that are happening. Um, and so to use one thing as sort of a, a case study and extrapolate it elsewhere is um, really difficult. But at the same time, I think there are some legitimate parallels. So I'm curious as to Wisconsin has this uh, groundwork of like activism in the last 10 years, really motivated during the Tea Party years. Senator Ron Johnson actually announced he is running again. He was just on this podcast and we asked him about it at the time. He announced uh, just yesterday, I believe, that he is running again for the Senate in the state of Wisconsin. Um, so campaigns like his, like Governor Walker's, former Governor Scott Walker's, um, and you know you had Paul Ryan and Reince Priebus and all these people who are really powerful that motivated this big grassroots in Wisconsin. Um, are you seeing the people involved in this just those sort of people from the, the the infrastructure of grassroots in Wisconsin or in a state like Wisconsin, where there's this political realignment that changed these rural parts, um, like where Congressman Duffy used to represent up in northern Wisconsin that voted Democrat for decades um, when Obi was there and now is pretty solidly red and very, very pro-Trump. Are you seeing new people in the coalition or does this actually really look like a sort of typical Republican coalition? Uh, Some of it seems pretty Republican. Um, Well, and, you know, some of that was evidenced by the fact that this was a parent town hall that was organized by, 
you know, former Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Clayfish, who's now looking to unseat Tony Evers. And so she was part of that whole Walker administration. Um, and so there, there are a lot of people supporting that effort who have kind of been there since the beginning. But then, uh, you know, I heard from some parents who who said, you know, sure, they have voted in elections past, but they've never voted in a school board election. And now they're running for school board. And so um, definitely a mix of those two things. Um, it, it's I didn't talk to any former Obama, you know, Democrats or anything like that. But I wouldn't say that it's like an establishment Republican effort. Uh, there's a lot of, of new parent energy that we haven't seen before. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and a lot of impassioned moms. <laughs> so, you know, it, like a scorned mom is not somebody to mess with. There were so many women in that room who are just like going full on mama bear for their kids. And so obviously that's not a not really a political analysis, but you cannot take these these moms who are determined to figure out what's going on in their kids schools. They are a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. Can you tell us what some of their uh, stories look like? I mean, I'm sure you you have to be more broad and because uh, there's there's a lot of them. But can you tell us what some of those stories are? Is it that you know they had these? We talked about this a little earlier that they had the their kids in COVID school for forever, um, or that they noticed critical race theory. Is it a combination? Is it truly a combination of all of that? Um, you know, what did the moms in particular? What are their backstories? What are their uh, sort of paths to this moment? Yeah, it seems to be a combination of those things. One mom I talked to, for instance, um, she's become very active now in local Wisconsin politics and trying to help um, help, you know, organize support for candidates and such. She told me that um, her daughter, a healthy seventh grade girl, has now been quarantined a total of four times um, for a total of 14 school days. And she hasn't had COVID. So um, and the reason that she's had to quarantine is because she's come into contact with other students who have tested positive for COVID. And because her daughter is unvaccinated, she has to quarantine, whereas the vaccinated students don't. So um, she told me that on the first day of the school year, her daughter was sitting at a lunch table and another kid at the lunch table who was vaccinated tested positive for COVID. So anyone who tests positive has to isolate. So that kid had to isolate who tested positive. But then of everyone else at the table, only the unvaccinated kids had to quarantine. So her daughter had to be home for, I forget the number of days. I want to say it's a total of seven days um, and then produ produce a negative COVID test before she could come back to school. So these are the kinds of things that are animating these parents. So, you know, you you can see why a mom like that would be like, oh, no, you know, and jump into the to the ring and get involved. And so those are the types of things that are animating these parents. Same as, you know, the woman that I told you, her kids academics tanked when she had them in Milwaukee public schools during the COVID era and how it's improved. She can see the marked improvement since she moved them to charter schools. Moms like that. Um, critical race theory, like I said, was a factor. Uh, there's one school board candidate who is very concerned about the fact that kids could be learning this. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Bill Brewer. He was one of the few men who spoke and he's running for um, school board in Slinger School District. And he was actually inspired by another mom who won a school board seat and then held fast on some school lunch policies that then she was smeared by the Washington Post for. <laughs> um, he was inspired by her. And one of the things that animated him was that the area that he lives in is predominantly white. It's not very diverse at all, um, but he is a minority in that area. And he is the one who is concerned about kids in that area learning critical race theory. And he gave a very 
impassioned speech um, and is now running for school board. So it's definitely a mix of factors, but those are the types of issues that are just they might not seem big to somebody in Washington. They might not seem big to somebody like Anthony Fauci who can sit, you know, before a Senate hearing and, you know, talk about the data and try to, you know, cover himself. But these are super important issues to parents in Wisconsin. So if you were a Republican strategist um, on, you know, your perch here in Washington, D.C., what would you advise Republicans to do on the federal and the state level if they're actually trying to uh, make inroads with voters, if they're actually trying to address the concerns of voters? Well, first, I think they start, they have to start listening to voters. <laughs> I think one, another one of the frustrations that these parents have is, is not just that they're not getting the policies that they want, but they don't feel heard. You know, you saw a lot of this happen during the Trump era. And then, you know, it, of course, came out with Glenn Youngkin as well. But these parents are not only fed up with the policies, they're fed up with being ignored. Um, and I think Republicans would do well to to not just throw more platitudes at flyover Americans, not just throw more Republican talking points out into the wind and write their press releases. They need to get on the ground and actually hear the concerns of um, not even Republican voters, just voters in general, because I think they would learn a lot. Um, and it's something that is severely lacking. Um, so for instance, here in Wisconsin, you know, this was organized by former Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Clayfish, um, and she's in campaign mode. You know, she's trying to listen to the concerns of these parents as, you know, partly as a campaign strategy, but um, contrast that with Tony Evers, who has vetoed uh, education transparency bills that would force schools to put the curriculum um, to make it accessible to parents. And so, you know, you have one candidate who is going out of her way to listen to the concerns of parents. She had, um, you know, different paperwork on the tables that asked parents to fill out their top three concerns. And that was the goal was to like, um, to survey parents, understand what's on their minds, you know, do some Q and A's. It wasn't just a political speech. It was, let's find out what is, what is on the minds of these parents. And then contrast that with the governor who is actively trying to shield the curriculum from parents. And so uh, of course, you know, there I'm contrasting a Republican candidate with a Democrat governor, but sometimes um, you see these differences even among Republicans. And I think Republicans would do well to understand that parents are not just looking for platitudes about taxes. They really need a candidate that they feel is hearing their concerns and is going to do something about them. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Kylie, I'll close on this uh, big question again, which is, as somebody who's following this and reporting on it on a state and local level, what do you think the conversation is missing nationally? Um, you know, the media conversation about this, the elite conversation about this. What do you think people just aren't getting? Um, let's. Well, I think parents in particular are not concerned about the overarching numbers. Um, and I got at this earlier, just about the things that are affecting them acutely. But there is there is um, a disillusionment with the ruling class um, because of just an unwillingness to talk about the things that are actually concerning these parents. So the conversation right now is a lot about um, transmission, about case numbers, about, you know, what is and is not being taught in schools in a very like, you know, Joy Reid type of critical race theory is not a thing. You know, these um, conversations that are just disconnected from the actual effects of the issues. And that is 
um, an on the ground perspective and, you know, talking about like the fact that Omicron is not killing children. Um, that kind of stuff is missing from the conversation. Talk about what critical theory looks like on a very granular level, what it can look like in the classroom, even though it's not explicitly mentioned by name. Um, talk about the effects of masks on kids, not just the uh, you know conventional wisdom that masks are our only tool to stop the spread, but but in the weeds conversations about what masks look like when you're asking first graders to wear them for eight hours on end. These are the types of things that are totally missing from the conversation. Kylie Zempel, assistant editor at The Federalist. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Emily. Good to be back. Yeah. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> and thanks for your reporting, by the way. I highly recommend everybody check out that piece on our site and follow Kylie's reporting because she is following the story and she is doing it not from the coast, but actually from Wisconsin, which is one of my favorite things about The Federalist is that uh, our reporters are spread out all over the country, whether it's That's Texas, right. Indiana, Wisconsin, um, or sadly here in D.C. where some of us fester. And if any Wisconsinites want to get involved, there is a Senate hearing tomorrow on anti-vaccine mandate legislation. So go to the Capitol. We'll be there. This is veering too far into activism, activism, Kylie. You have breached your journalistic ethics. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Kylie, it was super great to catch up and appreciate your reporting. Um, Everybody, thank you so much for listening. You have been listening to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashensky, culture editor here at the Federalist. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. You got me wrong.